Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. I just happen to have that little bend in me that's like, if I'm going to buy your share, I want to get something. I want to get paid. Pay me. I love that philosophy. That's it. You do it with real estate. You do it with everything. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Ash Patel, and I'm with today's guest, Toby Mathis. Toby is joining us from Las Vegas, Nevada. He is the founding partner of Anderson Law Group and a managing partner of Anderson Business Advisors. Toby helps entrepreneurs around the world create lives free from the burden of financial imprisonment through wealth creation. Toby, thank you for joining us. And how are you today? I'm doing fantastic. And thanks for having me, Ash. It's our pleasure. And best ever listeners, if this name rings a bell, Toby and Anderson Advisors put out an absolute ton of free content. So you may have seen him in your emails at some of the conferences that we go to. They were at the Best Ever Conference and just an absolute wealth of knowledge. Toby, if you would give the Best Ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now. Yeah. So by trade, I'm an attorney. I became an attorney because I didn't like attorneys and I was raised in not like attorneys. So I became an attorney in 1997. And I've been trying to make up for that fact ever since. I love my brethren, but I always kind of joke and jostle that there's the good side of the force and the bad side, and the bad side sometimes gets all the headlines. But I got involved with small business owners and investors since day one. Never wanted to be a courtroom attorney, although I did clerk for three different judges, so I've seen the inside, and I practiced in that area in the beginning of my career, and I try to avoid it like the plague now. So I have a real simple philosophy. You should be talking to people that do what you do. And so I invest heavily, probably know my partner, Clint Coons, but he and I have over 400 properties at this point, everything from commercial to self-storage to single family. So I do what my clients do pretty much incessantly. can't help it. It's like an addiction. Once you start getting into cash flow, you're like, yes, I'd like that one. Maybe that one over there. What about these? Sure. It's hard to say no. Toby, you focus on asset protection, tax savings, setting up structures properly, syndication. What am I missing? What else do you focus on? 
Well, I like it to take your values. So a person like you, Ash, you probably have strong values and make sure there's a legacy for your family. So I'm not big on the whole die and distribute, give it all to your kids. I'm into what does your estate look like in 200 years? And that's going to dictate what we're going to do now. I like creating cash machines that are perpetual. I like having investments that are turnkey or easy so that if I'm gone, remove me from the equation that it just keeps going on and keeps benefiting society. I love doing the philanthropic side. I love doing the charities and things like that in real estate, which a lot of people miss. There's huge opportunities there and create a legacy. It's about leaving something behind that is greater than us during our lifetimes. Yeah. And we're not pulling punches here. You guys are one of the best around in terms of setting up structures, tax savings, Let's cover some of the basics first. Biggest mistakes that investors make, and not the newbie investors, but maybe the mid-tier or more experienced investors. Yeah, I would say that it's cheap. A lot of times they think, hey, I learned just enough, so I'm going to try to do some things myself because it might save me a few dollars. And it costs them, in some cases, it costs them everything they own, which is the worst case. And I've had those folks come through my door where it's just heartbreaking. 80-year-old lady real estate investor, has her attorneys, has her accountants, had the bullseye right on her back, has a liability occurrence, is the deep pocket, and then finds herself with nothing at the end of a long ordeal while everybody was telling her it was going to be okay. So there's that. And then there's the people that just know better. They're just sometimes lazy or they're trying to save a few bucks. And just because you can do something (laughs) doesn't mean you should do something. And I always think about it, like you wouldn't operate on yourself. If you were a dentist, you wouldn't pull your own teeth. Yet people will still think, hey, I could save a few dollars and I'm going to do it myself. And that's just not what serious people do. And the cost of doing it that way, gosh, what was it, Minute Lube or one of those that says you could pay me now or you could pay me later. You could choose to keep driving your car and not change its oil, or you could try to do it yourself, but you're going to end up paying for it in the future. And we see a lot of that. That's probably the most common thing I see is somebody goes to their local attorney or local accountant and they have no real life experience in real estate. And they try to do things out of a book and somebody's experimenting on them and they're the test case. And unfortunately, when it actually gets tested, they rarely hold up. And so that's probably my biggest pet peeve is like, hey, if you're an investor and you're making good money, don't be cheap. It's not price, it's value. Really focus on the value and successful people focus on value. If I buy something from a wholesaler, I'm not too concerned about what the wholesaler's getting. I'm worried about what I'm getting. And if they make a bunch of money, God bless them. But when you're doing your taxes, when you're doing an asset protection plan, it's about making sure that you're getting the most value for your dollars. You shouldn't be playing it cheap. Don't play it cheap. Toby, do you cringe when you see those online posts saying, so I'm between setting up an LLC or should I do an S Corp or should I do this? And they get internet advice for all their different business models. It matters where you're at. Here's a great example, Ash. If I was investing in Florida, they have a statute that enables you to have protections with a land trust. And I can avoid dock stamp fees, if you know what those are, which is these transfer taxes, just by knowing what it is. And if somebody will go down there and they'll reach out online and somebody will say, oh, you always use an LLC. You just cost yourself tens of thousands of dollars in transfer taxes if you have a mortgage because you followed some internet advice, it would have been cheaper and easier if you'd just done it right the first place. Or you get somebody in California, oh, you always have to pay the $800 franchise tax on all the entities. No, you don't. There's several exceptions and there's ways to avoid it. 
or in my neck of the woods in Clark County, I can put property into an LLC tax-free, but if I take it out, I pay a Clark County transfer tax. It's depending on where you're at in the country. It depends on the type of investment you're doing and the advice changes. So there's no cookie cutter. So you shouldn't be online asking somebody for their advice. You should really be talking to somebody who looks and says, let me research this. Let's take a look at what's going on in your county or your state, (laughs) right? It changes. So you guys are national. How do you know what's going on in my county? 500 employees and we work with investors. Here's the easiest thing to do. Go do it and talk to people that are doing it. If I don't know what's going on, I probably have clients that do in that area or realtors that do or tax attorneys. We're a network. So I could call another firm and say, hey, what are you guys doing? And I could find out what's going on in a particular area. And if we don't know, we're going to tell you when it comes to doing deed transfers, I'm not going to touch New York or New Jersey. I'm just going to say, sorry, guys. We're going to hire that out. We're going to refer that one out. You're going to have to find a local professional on that one. Same thing as if you were getting divorced or something. And I'm like, that's not what I do. I can't help you, but I can certainly talk and communicate with your counsel. But there's certain things that you're going to need somebody else for. And what we're trying to do is figure out where that line is. We don't know everything, but we have a lot of experience in a lot of different areas that covers probably 90% of the clients out there. And if there's an area that it's Tennessee is very different, they have non-corporate owned entities, you have a franchise tax, you have these things where you're like, oh, shoot, there's a repercussion to not knowing this information. So let's make sure that we're gathering that information before we make a recommendation. Toby, there's a lot of rumors about what changes are coming through, everything with 1031, capital gains. What are you seeing in terms of changes that real estate people should be on the lookout for? Or what are some changes that have happened and we just don't know about them yet? Yeah, really good question. And the first thing you got to know is the tax world is always in flux. There's always new bills being floated out there and they have an effect. So like earlier this year, there was an innocuous bill that was passed. I think it was in January, and they basically neutered conservation easements. People don't even realize it. So they're still going out and there's syndicators out there pitching it, but now you're limited to two and a half times the land basis. You're looking at this thing going, wait a second, I'm not really going to get any tax benefit out of doing it. I didn't even know it left. In 2017, we had this massive tax cut and jobs act, and it was like this big, massive Trump tax cuts is what they called it. But There was a lot of increases there, and there was a lot of nuances, some things that really helped real estate investors, and some of those are sunsetting. For example, you're probably doing this yourself. You have something called a cost segregation where you're breaking property into its proper components. It's actually what you're supposed to do. Five-year property is five-year property. Seven-year property is seven-year property. 15-year property depreciated over 15 years. 27 and a half years or 39 years, you're supposed to break it into those pieces. And then you can accelerate some of those. If it's 20 years or less, you're going to accelerate it. And up until 2023, it was 100%. So in 2017 till 2022, you had this 100% bonus depreciation, mind-numbingly powerful for real estate investors. Well, it just went down 20%. And it's going to go down another 20% next year. Now, there is a bill in front of Congress now where they're talking about extending the 100% bonus depreciation. We're going to see where that one goes. But these things are always changing. So as far as big changes, we know that this current administration doesn't really like the 1031 exchange. 
doesn't really like stepped up in basis, has vocalized that they want to change it. They haven't gotten it passed. You got mixed parties in power, so I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. But you just have to sit there and watch and, and know somebody that's actually paying attention to it for you and lets you know this is coming down the pike or, hey, this is an important change that's going to affect you. Toby, those 1031 rumors on how those are potentially going away, my opinion on that is you can decimate people with that snowball tax that they've accumulated. Is that a real possibility that we won't see the 1031s outlast us? I see it being a red herring for real estate. They've eliminated the 1031s on everything else. They've already killed it. So they've been chopping away at 1031 for years now. And now all that's left is real estate. And I think that's like, I always say, if I'm going to threaten you, I'm going to threaten you with (laughs) nuclear war. Because what I'm trying to do is getting you to negotiate something else. Because like the doomsday scenario, 1031 exchange going away is a doomsday. Step up in basis is a doomsday. Yeah, I mean, it would kill a lot of real estate. It would definitely. All those coastal buyers coming into the Midwest and overpaying just to satisfy a 1031. We love those people. <laughs> it's like, thank you. But I don't see it going away. I think it's a red herring. That's me personally. These things go on. They'll exist on the internet in perpetuity. So if I'm wrong, everybody can point in fingers. But we've been pretty accurate as far as just even the real estate market. Everybody's screaming about the big collapse that's going to happen and all these things. We're like, yeah, it's not 2008. There's a lot of equity. There's not a lot of inventory. Yeah, interest rates are high. Affordability sucks, but we're about 5 million units underbuilt. Apartments last year, I think we were 700,000 units underbuilt in this country. There's just so much demand. And by the way, I think we have 3 million people undocumented that came in in the last year too. It's like demand's going up. I don't see these things on the tax side. I don't see a lot of big changes. Big change that is coming down the pike though is the Corporate Transparency Act and having to have reporting to FinCEN on beneficial ownership of entities. That's going to be one that's etched in stone. It's going to happen in 2024. We just don't know what it's going to look like yet. But yeah, there are some changes, but are they going to have an impact on real estate investors? Not really. I think that real estate's still the most favored asset class out there. I think that if there was tax gods, they love real estate. They're like, you don't want to pay taxes I got this one thing, this one type of investment. And if you get good at it, you'll never pay taxes ever. That's the only thing that's out there like that. With the transparency bill, does that mean you can't anonymously own those New York City penthouses anymore? No, you could still anonymously own everything. Okay, That's the beautiful part. If you know what you're doing, you're <laughs> not the public record, but you have to let the government know. They want the oligarchs and they want the people that are playing games with the tax world tax evaders or criminal enterprises. They want to know, you've got to sign on the dotted line. Somebody has to sign here that they're the beneficial owner. And the Bank Secrecy Act already did a lot of that heavy lifting. So they already have access. But I think FinCEN wants the reporting directly. They just want to know, if I can't see on a public record who owns this, government wants to know who the beneficiaries are. If you're greater than 25%, I want to know. And then they're going to keep it a secret? Yeah, it's non-public information. But In theory, tax returns are non-public information, but it doesn't mean that a couple returns didn't get leaked out there by strategic leakers. (laughs) (laughs) There's that. Your firm is big on, what do you call it, sheltering assets or basically making it difficult 
to find everything that you own so that if I'm involved in a lawsuit, it's not a large laundry list of assets that they can go after. Give us the premise behind that, please. Yeah. So it's security through obscurity is the term that I like to use. If somebody doesn't know what you have, they're not going to try to take it from you. So for example, if I know that Ash Patel has 15 properties and I'm an aggrieved tenant, I'll use real life because I just had this happen to me. Somebody trashed one of my units. They flooded it out. They didn't say anything. They locked the doors. We had to evict them. And you get in there and there's mold everywhere. A lot of those folks will just turn around and sue you and say, you have mold in your unit. Well, you denied me access to the unit and you trashed the place. It doesn't mean that some lawyer's not going to go out there trolling for it. If I see 15 properties in your name, you become a great defendant. If I look at you and I don't see anything, who is the owner? ABC LLC and they don't own anything else or it's a trust, ABC trust, and I can't see anything else that it owns. I'm like, oh crap, there's not a lot of equity in this property. Probably not our best bet. But if I can see Ash owns a bunch of properties, I look up your house and it's a really nice house. This guy's got some pockets and they're deep, right? Maybe I'm going to go after Ash Patel and, and make him a great defendant. And if nothing else... I know that you'll be really annoyed and you'll be like, I want this lawsuit out of my life. And you'll probably throw $30,000 at it. There's a lot of lawyers that'll do that. We don't want that to happen to you. I want them to look at you and they don't see what you own. They don't even see your house. That's what I want. I want them to say, oh, this guy doesn't really own a lot in his name and obviously has counsel and is not going to be worth it. Because when you value a lawsuit, I'll break this down. I have to look at what's the merits of my actual lawsuit. And I have to give myself kind of a, what's the value? What's the percentage chance I'm going to win? And then I have to value what are my chances of collecting? If the chances of collecting are a really small percentage, I have to multiply that against the value of my lawsuit. So if I have a $100,000 lawsuit, my chances of collecting are 10%. The settlement value of that is about 10,000 bucks. That's literally the math that you're going to do. You're going to say, even if we win, there's a good chance we'll never collect. Most lawyers don't want those cases, and they're going to encourage their client to settle for something rather than get nothing. Dumb question, but if I'm involved in a lawsuit, at some point, do they not ask you to disclose all your assets? Yeah, that's in supplemental proceedings. So I have to get a judgment against you. So let's say that I'll, I'll use real life situation. One of my clients was in the bank teller line and they had their company truck and they let their foot off the brake and it bumped the car in front of them. The car in front of them was like, oh, no problem, no problem. There's no damage here or anything. And they kind of looked and they saw the name of the business on the side. And eventually, two years later, before the statute of limitations, they got sued for somebody sitting there saying I had all this injury to my neck and I had soft tissue and I had treatment. I still get headaches and I probably have brain damage all because you hit me in that line. And you're like, wait a second, I didn't even hit you. I bumped into you. I rolled into you. But of course, over two years, it's going to be that you reamed into it while they were stationary and the jolt of it, they jerked and they tore muscles and their ligaments and they have all this soft tissue injury and they're going to be permanently scarred, all this stuff they throw in there. And they look at that business. How is it relevant what that business has as assets to whether or not you were negligent when you were driving? And the answer is it's not, right? It's not relevant. To the attorney, it is. To the attorney, they want to get to that point where they figure out what you have. And that's why you have to disclose insurance. 
and you want to keep it to the insurance. So we call it being the master of your pleadings. So if I'm the plaintiff's lawyer and I can't see what you own, I'm going to keep it within the four walls of that insurance policy so I can get paid. Because what I don't want to do is allege that person willfully ran into me because now I'm not going to get coverage under a policy or they were involved in something that was outside the scope of the employment, like they were joyriding or something. I need to keep within, they were driving on behalf of their business and they caused a car accident. And then once I prove my case, then I can start supplemental proceedings and ask you where your assets are. OJ Simpson is a great case. The Goldman family sued the hell out of him, got a multi-million dollar judgment. And then they said, where's your Heisman trophy? And he was like, I don't know. Well, we found it a few years later at Palace Station on videos, but he was trying to get it back. But it was all this stuff. Like, what assets do you have? By that time, he was already in Florida. He owned his house at Unlimited Homestead. They weren't able to collect anything. And sadly, that's our system. But people are oftentimes judging whether or not you make a good defendant based off of what they can find you owing. So what we would do is we remove that from the equation. If you have a case against one of our clients, I get it. You bring your case, but it's the merit of that case. You're not going to bring a case that's crappy because you think my client has a bunch of money because you're not going to be able to tell. And that's what we do is we remove the bullseye. Rich people get sued a lot more than poor people. And what we want to make sure of is that they can't tell you're a rich person. And there's ways to do that legally and ethically so that it's not part of the equation. If you run into somebody in your car, by all means, if they have a valid claim, they can deal with it. Realistically, your insurance should be covering that. What I don't want is them to allege a bunch of stuff that's not underneath your insurance because they see that you have a bunch of property and you become the victim of a frivolous lawsuit, which I just had one this morning. Somebody that in their business, an employee did something and they ended up with a claim and the opposing counsel kept prodding and prodding saying, we can't see what the owners own. We can't see who the owners are on a bunch of property. And they just sent a thank you saying, hey, this suit is going to get resolved here pretty quickly because it really is. It's Was the employee, did they commit negligence or did they do something? What is the damage as a result? It doesn't matter what the owners own. It should not matter in our society. Unfortunately, if you leave yourself exposed, it does matter and somebody will use it against you. You're going to think this is a dumb question, but why not always go in guns blazing, ask for 10 million on every lawsuit? Because it's frivolous, you could be sanctioned for it. Do attorneys do it? Yes. Attorneys oftentimes ask for the moon. I'll give you two that we just saw. Won't get into all the specifics because they are public situations, but it was multi-million dollar lawsuits and one of them settled for 35000 and the other one sold it for 30000 At the end of the day, they're seeing what can I get and what can I allege? And that doesn't matter. It's what you can prove and what are the actual damages. And a lot of times they're just shaking you down. If you have a bunch of assets and you could lose it, there's no incentive for them to settle. They want to get in front of a jury and roll the dice. And even though you might be right and you're 90% certain you're going to win, there's that 10% where you're like, crap, the jury hates me and the jury just throws some god-awful figure out there and they buy whatever the plaintiff lawyers are pitching. That's going to get into the back of your head. You're going to have to make an intelligent decision. But for the most part, you can't just willy-nilly throw something out there, though people do it. 
technically you have statutes, CR 11 and things like that, where you're not supposed to do that. And then you could be sanctioned and things like that. But still, it's rarely enforced. People do it all the time and they do try to shake you down. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you tired of spending hours managing your rental properties? Inago is here to simplify your life as a landlord or property owner with their free property management software. With Inago, you can say goodbye to complex and costly solutions. Inago is designed with simplicity in mind, focusing on the features that matter to you. From tenant screening and lease signing to rent collection and work order management, Inago has got you covered. They offer a seamless interface and dedicated support representatives to assist you in every step of the way. Join thousands of satisfied landlords and start streamlining your property management tasks today with Inago. Plus, you'll get a $25 Amazon gift card just for using Inago. Visit Inago.com forward slash best ever to get started and reclaim your time and sanity. That's I-N-N-A-G-O.com forward slash best ever. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital.thebamcompanies.com the bam companies.com so you also can't go in there sue for ten thousand, realize the person has a bunch of assets bump it up to two million you could oh you could absolutely could oh. yeah just because i say hey here's what i'm asking for if somebody does that you just immediately accept and say i'll give you an offer of judgment for that amount especially if you're liable but they can allege whatever they want they could do discovery sometimes i say here's what i think my damages are but treatment is ongoing They always throw in their weasel language, lawyer language. It's like, hey, I don't want to pin myself down. But if you say, I'm going to sue you for $10,000, you say, I accept that, right? I'll do your offer of judgment or I'll accept judgment against me. Or I just won't fight it. Hey, you can go ahead and have your default. You get a default order, get a default judgment against me for that amount and I'll pay it. But in most cases, people aren't going to do that. Most cases, people are saying they're leaving their options way open. They're saying we need to do discovery. Discovery is a two-way street. Discovery just means when you're doing depositions in written requests for admissions, requests for production, interrogatories where, where you have to answer things. Most of the times they're doing that before they're settling on an amount, if it's a legitimate lawsuit. If it's frivolous, they just throw a bunch of spaghetti at the wall and they hope you pay them. In discovery, do you not get to ask questions about assets? Generally speaking, you could try, but it's not relevant to the underlying suit. So your lawyer can object and they're going to say, again, were you negligent when you were driving? How much money do you have, Ash? (laughs) It has nothing to do. It's irrelevant. We're not going to answer that. Once you get a judgment, there's proceedings for that where they can ask you those questions. 
But generally speaking, it's not relevant in the beginning. Do people still try? Yes. And are there lawyers that will answer? Possibly. And this is where it comes down to. If you're asking me about the assets of a business that you're suing, I'd probably give them some of that information because it's in my best interest to let them know there's a finite world. If they start asking about the assets of the owners, I'm going to tell them to pound sand. Got it. I'm dying to ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? A legal and business advisor or a real estate investor? Both. (laughs) (laughs) No, I enjoy more. This is what's interesting. So Clint and I, again, we have sizable holdings and we're not big debt people. So we have very, very little to no debt. I have no personal debt and I have enough cash flow coming into where I could have retired a while ago. I like doing what I'm doing and I like talking to investors and I get a little bit of a rush when you see people building their revenue, their fortunes and retiring. I had a client Took her six years. She was an exec with a large Fortune 500 company. And she realized that she wasn't going to be able to retire anytime soon. And she walked the real estate path, figured out that cash flow assets are king. Accumulation is neat and dandy and it looks great on your net worth statement, but it doesn't mean anything. I need to have cash come again. And once you have enough cash coming in, you don't have to work. It's great. And I love people when they hit that point and they say, thank you. There's a little bit of a rush, and I'm sure you get it too when you're walking people in to say, here's the type of investments. And I know you're back. You were IT person for decades, worked for others. When you free yourself from that, I think that the people that are helping you along that way get a little bit of a like, hey, you're part of the team. You've joined our team. You're a real estate investor. You're part of my tribe now. And that's what I get off on. You said you don't have a lot of debt. A lot of the old timers in this industry will tell you, always put as much debt as you can on the building because it makes it less attractive for lawsuits. Yeah, there's something to be said, but I isolate the asset. So if I'm buying an apartment building, I'm probably going to have some debt on it. It might be up to 50%. Just going through 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, I didn't see any foreclosures on buildings that didn't have debt. I didn't see people lose their homes unless they had a mortgage on it. And I'm of that old, weird group that's like, there's leverage on an asset where the asset's paying for it. That's different than debt. Debt to buy things like cars and debt to buy things like your personal house, I'm not super fan of. I get it, but I'm all for leveraging assets that pay for that. But my brain starts to break when I think of MasterCard. They literally put it in their name. They're your master. (laughs) I'm like, I'm being subservient. And may I serve you, please? I have problems with that. So I hate credit cards unless I'm using them for points. I use them and then I pay them off immediately. I just hate paying other people interest, I guess. Yeah. And I would imagine in your industry, you've got some PTSD from all the things that you've seen, lawsuits, foreclosures. And yeah, I I get that. Well, let me just clarify one thing. It doesn't mean that you don't go out and do some debt. I just think you got to be smart about it. And yes, you're right. The only thing they can get from your building is its equity. So we'll use a lot of friendly liens. We'll have a company that's loaning the money that's a related entity. So they're going to get paid back so that the amount of equity that shows up is limited. I'm all for stuff like that. But what I'm not for is, and we're going to see this in the multifamily realm, all these resetting mortgages. I'm not a big fan of 80% loan to value, 70% loan to value. And you're basing your numbers on a really low interest rate, three or 4%. And now it resets to seven or eight and you're getting torpedoed. I'm not huge on that. I saw that happen last time. Hopefully it doesn't happen 
hopefully interest rates go down a little bit here and we don't see that catastrophic effect. I think we're going to get killed in commercial. I think commercial is actually going to get slaughtered. There's $1.5 trillion worth of mortgages that are being reset in the next few years. It's going to be a bloodbath on some of these. They have low occupancy and great opportunity for us out there. This <laughs> is real estate investors, not so yeah, good. Office especially. So should we not drive nice cars? Because is that indicative of you having a lot of money? No, I love it. If you want to buy a, a Bugatti, just buy it from your assets. <laughs> so I have something I call the losing loop, right? Here's the losing loop. You're making money to pay your debt and you're using more debt to pay for your expenses. That's the losing loop. And that's happening in this country a lot right now. I think it's, it's way into double digits. It may not be quite 50%, but I think a lot of people are living off of their credit cards, off their HELOCs on their houses, and they're working to pay those debts. I don't like that. What I say is work your butt off, buy assets, let your assets pay for everything else. So if you want a Bentley, get a Bentley, but make sure your rental properties are paying for it. Yeah, I agree with that fully. And that was actually a serious question because if you're involved in a lawsuit and you are driving a Bentley, does the opposing counsel automatically assume that you've got assets? There's two things. They assume you have assets and they assume you have attorneys. So I see this in the tax world. The poor are about 13 times more likely to get audited than the wealthy. Like the poorest amongst us, the discrepancy in audits is huge, huge. And the reason is simple, is they pay the notice. They're not making the most, but they can't afford to bring in the accountants and the attorneys to bear. And to a certain extent, the same is true when you see somebody who's affluent and they have the earmarks of having done an asset protection plan, most of the times they're done. We literally had, it was a 30 plus million dollar lawsuit against a client that had culpability and liability. They could be on the hook for the whole amount because there's something called joint and several liability. And the lawyers look at it. They literally asked about Clint, my partner, and said, is, is that your lawyer? And they said, yes. And they came back and gave an offer. It was hundreds of thousands. So it wasn't like they walked away for nothing, but on $30 million liability, you could sell it for 400 grand. Do you do it? Yeah. Done. Yep. I'm good. Get that big ax away from my neck. Yeah. And that's the earmark is you want them to see it and say, that's a tangled web. This is a quote from one of our clients. The attorneys on the other side said, this is a tangled web we're going to give you an offer. They offered 10 cents on the dollar. So it's two sides. You don't want to encourage the lawsuit by being obviously exposed, everything in your name. That's dumb. On the same token, you can be wealthy. And if you could see the structure, if they could see, oh shoot, this guy uses a series of LLCs and I can't really see what he owns or she owns. I can't see that. I know my chances of collecting just went way down my cost of collecting just went way up. So the risk reward is not going to be there. The mindset is fascinating around lawsuits. That is very interesting. If you take someone like me that's been in real estate for 10 years, I think I've done some things right. I'm sure I've done some things wrong. Went to an asset protection attorney to set up a family trust, but don't really know how all this fits together. What services do you offer? And really, what's the realm of your services? Because I know you've touched on so many different things. What yeah, do you so, do to take somebody like me or somebody that's been in this business for a while and fix them? Ash, what we're going to do is just give it a systematic 10,000 foot view. 
we do something called the risk reduction formula, where we're breaking your assets into its components. And we're looking and seeing how it's structured. A lot of times people have good attorneys and they've done 90% of it well. And maybe the attorney is not talking to the accountant and there's been a, we've missed some opportunities on the tax side. Our firm happens to have attorneys and CPAs and EAs and accountants and bookkeepers. So we do everything under one roof. Nobody else really does that. So you might have your attorney who did a really great job, but your accountant sucks. Or they set this up from an asset protection standpoint, which was smart, but they missed the bill on the business planning side of it. Or your accountant did a great thing and they got your income down to zero, but now you can't get a loan. There's always different elements. And we try to look at it and we call it the three-legged stool. We're looking at your asset protection. We're looking at your tax. We're looking at your business planning. We can add a fourth leg on there if we want your legacy planning. And we're using those all basically on equal footing. We don't want to be lopsided. We don't want to have the stool be off kilter because the asset protection is great, but it really messed us up from a tax perspective. Now you're overpaying and your estate plan's all screwed up because of the way you handle things. Like I gifted a bunch of stuff to my kids and now I lost the step up in basis and now it's theirs and they have liabilities. They get a divorce and all of a sudden you lose the asset. There's all these other features. I'll use a real life example of somebody who had a building, I think it was an apartment building and the attorney set it up as an LLC properly and the accountant said, we can make it disregarded so you don't have to file a tax return. So everything went onto their Schedule E page one. Not a big deal, except the buyers of that unit needed the separate tax returns for that structure. They needed to have the books and records and the taxes for that to qualify for that apartment building to qualify for their loan. And that could not be provided because it was on the individual's tax returns. And they kept saying the banks wanted to see a 1065. They wanted to see a partnership return for that building. And two buyers couldn't get financing as a result. And I look at it, you know this right away, where you can't go through underwriting. They don't want to see an individual return. They want to see the actual return for that building. That building is a separate asset to them. They're going to underwrite that asset. And if we can't clearly delineate that information, they're going to have a problem and they want to see tax returns. And on their little checklist of what they're going to go down, they're going to say, do you have the tax returns? They're going to say no. And they don't and get a schedule tax. E is not enough for that. They want an actual full return. They want to see the 1065 99% of the time. They want to see something so that they can isolate it. Now you're going to say, I know there's not really a difference. They should be able to get this off the schedule E. Well, you have a whole bunch of stuff on your schedule E. It's on there because of the way this was set up. There was 20, 30 properties sitting there on this person's schedule E. It was like page after page after page. That's not a separate return. I want to see this property in a box by itself. This is what I'm buying. I need to underwrite it. I need to be able to feel confident that those numbers are accurate. And it just screwed up this particular individual. And how do we know that it was screwed up? Because when we made it a partnership, which we just added, they were actually a husband and wife, and we could actually treat it as a partnership. We isolate it. They do their return. They sell it the next year. No problem. My mind is spinning. I'm full of fear. Man, this is a lot to take in. So thank you for all of this. Toby, I'm going to ask you, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Buy cash flow. The best real estate investing advice, I'll tell you, this is weird. I was in high school and I met a guy, his name was Boyd Watkins in Burien, Washington. He was a friend of a guy that was a mentor of mine. Boyd probably doesn't remember me at all, but I just remember him. 
and he bought foreclosures and he had these lists of properties. And at the time I was just like, man, that guy's rich. He had hundreds of properties in Seattle and and Denver at the time. I don't know what he's worth now. He's got to be worth gajillions of dollars. This was in the eighties, by the way. So I hope he's still around and I hope he's still doing what he was doing. But I just remember looking at it and I go, man, that guy's rich. And it was about 10 years later that it hit me. That same meeting finally sunk in. Those were all cash machines. He didn't have to work. The rents on that must have been enormous. It didn't hit me. It was literally a decade plus later. I think it was one day I was just thinking about it. I was like, all those properties. Young Toby was looking at it going, he has millions of dollars of real estate. Boy, he must be rich. That didn't really matter. What really mattered was the cash flow. And once I figured that out, then I was, you buy things for what it's going to produce. And I care about when I buy stocks, I treat stocks just like real estate. I call myself a stock market landlord. I want the dividends and I want the covered calls. I'm just going to rent them out and I'm going to get paid. And it's not how much is the stock worth? I don't know. I don't want a ticker signal on my house. I know that. I don't want to come home and it's gone down and be like, my house is worth $10,000 less today. I don't want that emotion. I don't want that in the stock market either. I don't look at my accounts for the most part. Just what is it paying me? How much is coming into the account? Once I figure that out, I think everything else fell into place. And that's just knowing the difference between a cash flow asset versus a pretend asset like your car. With your stocks, you never sell a stock. You do covered calls so that you're forced to sell it. You're paid to sell it. Every now and again, you get called out but you could roll yeah. out. Exactly. I wouldn't own a house and leave it vacant. I wouldn't buy a rental property and go, I hope it goes up in value. I'm just going to leave it empty. Why would you buy a stock and be okay with them keeping your money and not paying you anything? So I only buy companies that pay increasing dividends. My threshold is it has to be paying increasing dividends for 10 years. Then I believe in that company and it's got to have good cash free flow and it pays its shareholders and I love companies that have been doing it for greater than 50 years. That's your Coca-Cola, Procter & Gamble, 3M. There's companies that have been paying them for 25 years called aristocrats. Those are great too. I just happen to have that little bend in me that's like, if I'm going to buy your share, I want to get something. I want to get paid. Pay me. I love that philosophy. That's it. You do it with real estate. You do it with everything. Toby, I've got three last questions for you. Part of our lightning round. What is the best ever book you recently read? The $100 million offers. I thought that was awesome. What was your big takeaway from that? The articulation of value is really understanding how you're making something irresistible. You got to make it so that people can't walk away. They look at it and go, man, that is such a good deal. I'd be stupid to walk away and figure out how to articulate it. What's the best ever way you like to give back? Oh, I love giving back as a landlord. You could actually do your landlording as a nonprofit if you want to and be completely tax exempt. You could give a house away that you've owned for 20 years and actually take a tax deduction for giving the house and then never pay tax on it ever again. I love that stuff. And I love the fact that as individual landlords, this is going to be huge. Institutions can't do this. They have to protect their shareholders. They have to make a certain amount of money. But if I have an 80-year-old tenant, she's had that property for 20, 30 years, I can say I'm going to go to the low end of whatever I can charge. And I'm going to cut it to the nib and I can take care of you. Or if it's a disabled vet or if there's someone who's just struggling, as a landlord, I have the ability to affect that person's life. Don't miss out on that. There's nothing better than that satisfaction of knowing without asking for anything in return, you're helping somebody. And a lot of times they really appreciate it. They're going through a bad situation. You can directly have a positive impact on that person's life.
Thank you. And Toby, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? Toby Mathis into the, <laughs> you'll find my YouTube channel. We do create a lot of content. I'll make it simple. I'm not going to give you a link or anything, but I'm going to make you actually type in my name and do a little research. You'll find me in my firm, my partner Clint's out there all the time. And we are content whores. We love to just give until it hurts and then fight through that pain and give some more. We love putting the content out there and helping people make money. I'm just one of those folks that believes our country has the ability to create millionaires every day, all day long, day in and day out. There's not a scarcity mentality going on in my brain. It's just doing it smart. And you can absolutely go out there. I never resist the impulse to push more out there. It's like, keep just putting more content out there. Sure. And I will attest to that. There is an absolute ton of content that you and Clinton have put out. Thank you for all of that. Thank you for your time today. I feel like I could talk to you once a week and still not even make a dent in the knowledge that you have. So Toby, thank you again for your time today. Appreciate it, Ash. Anytime. Best ever listeners, thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this podcast with somebody you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so... Join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.